0: What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And if you didn't know, because every week there's a new listener, right? Every day there's someone discovering Living Corporate. So I'm going to just let everybody know. And then for those who've been rocking with us for a while, I'm going to remind y'all too. Living Corporate is a digital media network and we exist to center and amplify black and brown people at work. That's what we do. Okay. We are the voice of the people. We're not really here to promote corporations or protect them or be some type of like, I don't know, corporate, reputational, launder, laundering service. Like, that's not what we do, right? When we have brands on to talk about black and brown people at work, um, when we have executives, activists, elected officials, public servants, influencers, artists, et cetera, we have any of these types of people on, we're going to be centering and amplifying black and brown experiences. And if that brand happens to do that work and really be authentic in that space, then we will speak to them. And you can best believe that when they come on the stage on this platform, we're not pulling any punches. We're having real conversations. You know what I'm saying? Like that is what Living Corporate is all about. I'm so excited about where Living Corporate is. I'm excited about this episode. You're about to hear this conversation you're about to hear. Um, And, you know, I just want you to know that I love you. I appreciate you. Make sure that you follow Living Corporate everywhere we exist. You know what I'm saying? Just type in, just Google Living Corporate. I ain't about to rattle off all the social media handles. You know what I mean? Like if you just go on Google or whatever search engine you use, because that's not an ad either. Um, <laughs> whatever you use, uh, Ask Jeeves, Bing, Yahoo. I don't know what Microsoft Edge, whatever you're using, just type in Living Corporate and we're going to pop up right now. Look, what you're listening to is Real Talk Tuesdays. You're listening to um, one show that's part of a larger network, right? And so, what you're gonna if you check us out, you look at our website, living dot com you'll see that we actually have a network of shows, right? Um, all focused on centering and amplifying black and brown folks at work with different lenses, right? So, shout out to the entire team um, as our shows continue to come, you will hear about it but make sure you plug in so you can just stay in tune, that way you don't have to try to catch up you can just be caught up as you catching on you know what I'm saying? Now, um With that being said, I'm excited about this conversation you're about to hear. I want you to pay attention and make sure that you click the links in the show notes to learn more about what we're doing and where we're going. I'll see you soon. Dr. Pratt, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Listen it's an honor to have you here um i always get excited when i talk when i am able when living corporate is able to have uh, academics black academics black academics on the show <laughs> yeah,
1: i've heard that new word recently combined it.
0: it's, it's a fire combo um so look dr pratt we've had several black women um on living corporate who are in the ivory right between dr mcclooney and dr king um and, and several others right i I don't think I've asked this question before, like, super explicitly, but I'm going to ask you here, with Black women consistently mistreated in this space, why are you in academia?
1: So I guess I want to say Black women are mistreated in all spaces, in all sectors of the um, job sort of sectors and job economy, you know, from corporate to even not-for-profit for organizations, um, different private companies. It's, it's a tough space um, for us as Black women. I think the, the beauty of the academy is that we know that our presence makes a difference for students like us, even students not like us. So majority students benefit from our presence, students of color benefit from our presence. We know we can engage in scholarships, that's meaningful. We can engage in service, we can teach. And I think for me in particular, understanding that given the history of enslavement of African-Americans and that reading and writing was not allowed, it was criminalized. And now we have an opportunity to do that And to help others do that and to teach our history and to empower others with knowledge, its I I think it's a responsibility, a privilege and honor to be able to do that in the higher ed space. And so it's not for me about mistreatment, we're mistreated everywhere, just walking out the door, we're gonna be subject to some stuff. But being able to know that the specific role we're in, we're helping young people hopefully become empowered to make a difference in the world.
0: So what, you kind of, you answered a little bit there, but just like what inspired you to pursue a career in academia and more specifically your field of study?
1: So both my parents were in higher ed, were in the academy, the formal academy. They were faculty members. My father had a PhD in nuclear physics, got it in the 1960s. Wow. So you can just imagine what that was like for him. Um, He's from Sierra Leone in West Africa to come to the United States for education, for that opportunity for education. Studied at Hampton University before he went to Carnegie Mellon. My mom, um, her grandmother was enslaved. So she was born in rural Texas, sharecropped, picked cotton, and managed to sort of rise up from that status in life to get a PhD in social work at the University of Pittsburgh. And they both became college professors. Now my father's career was cut short because of racism. And so at the age of in his mid late thirties, he, his contract was not renewed and he never taught again. So it was a very sort of tragic story. And I say racism killed him. He died at 60. So for me, the importance of education, of higher education, of um, helping our people through education was kind of ingrained in my life through my parents and the power of education. So I went to University of Iowa. I got an undergrad degree in literary studies and a master's degree in that same area, but I minored in philosophy and African-American studies because I wanted to understand why are black people treated so bad in American society? Like, what's up with this cultural reality? And my parents made me watch Roots. And, you know, Roots came out. I was a nine-year-old child. I was probably too young to really have watched Roots and to seen those scenes that I had to see of brutality. But it stuck with me. Those images are so powerful. And it's like, why? Why? And so I went to college to try to answer that why. And my whole career has kind of been, I think I've answered the why enough that I can help other people try to understand the why and to work around that. So... Got a PhD in sociology, got a law degree, and so my work is in the social justice sphere, issues of race, class, gender, identity.
0: So, I mean, first of all, that's incredible, um, and 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 incredibly tragic, uh, you know, yeah. uh, related to your father, um, and also incredible that you have two parents um, who are able to rise up in that way in such yes. incredibly hostile spaces um, agreed you know you talk about your exposure to roots i recall watching roots as a, as a young child mm-hmm. as well and it being a lot to absorb um yes you know and so I, i'm curious and, then you, and again you talked about your inspirations i'm curious like as you think about your your career, like as you got Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. the study of social justice and like just the work that you like, the work that you've done, what were some moments that were pivotal that really just helped really drive and shape your, your research interests, even as you got into
1: your career? Yeah, I would say that there were sort of pivotal moments, um, undergirded by my parents' life. But my mother in particular became part of the 1% of black women full professors in the 1970s. Okay, and one of her seminal research projects was, it was called the Bloomington Normal Black History Project. She was at Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois, where I grew up. And she documented the experiences of elderly African Americans adjusting to that community. But it was a hundred elderly African Americans that she captured their oral histories and so she would take me to these events with her and emphasize to me the importance of voice of people's stories of understanding their life journeys so that was kind of a just a similar moment growing up it's like black people's stories and black people's lives are important when i went to law school and i was doing the joint degree program i wanted a research project that allowed me to connect both disciplines So sociology and understanding systems and society and structures and law and the legal system. And so at first I thought that was going to be in the criminal justice space. So I ended up teaching in the prison um, for several years, going into the men's maximum minimum security prison and the women's prison in Nashville. So I went to Vanderbilt University and so American Baptist College, a small black HBCU, had a program in the prisons when inmates could get Pell Grants and use their Pell Grants for education. So I was going into the prison weekly, seeing black brilliance, black, brown, largely, there were also white folks in there who were just brilliant minds behind bars. And that influenced me. It's just like, So those folks are there. Some of them will get out and have a chance to do better in the world. But there's some of us who are out, but we're acting like we're in prison. Mm. (laughs) So how can I help impact that? So that was a very transformational space for me. My dissertation was on black. It was on the single sex school debate in Detroit in the 1990s. And I don't know if you remember that, but there was a series of programming and efforts in the 1990s to deal with the black male crisis, as they called it at the time. Mm. And it's like, what can we do for our black boys? They're just dying and they have all these, you know, real, you know, impactful situations happening. And what should we do as a school system? Well, Detroit was a largely all black community, all black school system. I said, Hey, we're going to take this into our own hands and we're going to create single sex public schools for black boys. But that was illegal at the time. So it discriminated against girls. And I wanted to understand from the perspective of Black girls, how, what, what was the, the language that was used to justify the Black male schools? Because Black girls were also struggling. The schools were bad in general for both boys and girls. And so there was a social justice movement in Detroit at the time that said, hey, you know, there was a legal case and the Black community said, it, basically, ignore that legal case. Keep your girls at home. Just don't send them to the school, even though they have a right to be at the school. Just don't send them. Keep them at home. I'm like, do they got to stay at home? I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> so this, you know, so I looked at issues of black male sexism, black paternalism, race loyalty versus gender loyalty, hmm. white nas- black nationalism, white supremacy, like all of those issues converged legal issues, sociological issues in this Detroit single sex school debate. So that was a pivotal experience for me. And I guess one more experience is I was fortunate enough to get a federal judicial clerkship where I got to work for a judge. His name was Sam Irvin III. He was the son of Senator Sam from the Watergate hearings. Mm -hmm. And it was a federal court of appeals clerkship. So for one year, I was in this space, kind of the sacred space of decision-making about the law at the appellate level. And so I got to see how judges think Hmm. and how law is created and maintained and justified in that space. Hmm. And so that influenced my understanding of systems of power. (laughs) And then I was in rooms of power, like the the decision-making space of judges. And then I ended up um, working at Vanderbilt University, which was my alma mater. And I was the assistant secretary to the board, the governing board. And there were eight committees, 40 board members, and I was responsible for minutes and agendas and supporting this board. And I had never been in a room of just power, rich, powerful people making decisions. And I realized all the things that people could get. I like learned so much about investments. It's like, oh, well, what's asset allocation? I was just taking notes like, Oh, asset allocation, you make money if you allocate your assets Mm -hmm. properly. HR negotiations, this is how people decide compensation. Mm -hmm. These are the things that matter. Budgets, this is how budgets work. So I learned the inside world of higher ed, and I thought, if I can somehow understand that world, and again, use that knowledge to then help others, not just as a scholar now, but also as an administrator. So that sort of led to my career in higher ed administration, and now in this role as a vice president for strategic affairs and diversity and a professor of education.
0: Man, I just, you know, I have, I have a question. You know, I'm, I'm really, I'm always fascinated with language, right? Especially the language used, um, the language that popular society or mainstream society uses to, or chooses or selects rather, whatever words you want to use to describe. Yeah marginalized groups um mm-hmm. people of color women of mm-hmm. color like these yes. terms um I have, I have genuine challenges with them i i use mm-hmm. them i use mm-hmm. them in the spirit of aiming to not like alienate or create additional barriers to engage my audiences mm-hmm. yes but i don't particularly care for them i'm curious mm-hmm. like how you feel about um the, the term women of color like do you engage in that term and like I'm curious, like what studies or research, um, and would you, and, and would you say that the study, the studies and the work that you do apply to women of color? Like <laughs> that, no, mm-hmm. that's my, that's my question.
1: Well, I mean, it's an interesting nomenclature because white women are also women of color. <laughs> I mean, we're all have color. We all have identity. Mm-hmm. And in American society, we color people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's a social construction. So, um, you have people who are part of different racial and ethnic identities who are, have white skin. <laughs> so it's it's a complicated phrase, but people sort of understand the phrase, right? If you say women of color, it typically includes Black, African American women, women who are Latina, who identify as Latina, women who are Indigenous. Um, and And sometimes this is a point of conversation, whether it includes the APETA community, so the Asian Pacific Islander community. But women of color broadly should include marginalized or minoritized, because people sort of have gone away from minority to minoritized Hmm. communities. So sometimes you can put women of color, minoritized women in a bucket, and it's just because you're a minority woman, you're going to have certain experiences. So I founded a conference 12 years ago, and it's called the Faculty Women of Color and the Academy National Conference. So, and people who identify as women of color, largely African-American, Latinx, native, but a growing percent of the APETA community attend that conference. And they walk into a room of a thousand women of color and they like, I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like a transformational space. So I think that's an important sort of, yeah, we're, we're, we're in community together and it creates coalition, but it's also important to pull it out. Like black women's experiences, we're going to show up a certain way. You don't, you will know that we're black most, for the most part, right? You have some light-skinned folks who you are not sure or mixed that you're not sure. Right. But if you, you know, identify as African-American, you walk in a space and people see your color, your brownness. Okay. It's, People who are from the Latin, Latinx, Latine population have other sort of background cultural dynamics to navigate. The Native American community has specific realities that are different from other communities. So, and and you know, the API community is large. It's Japanese Americans, you know, Chinese Americans, Vietnamese. I mean, Indian. I mean, it's it's huge. And it, just to lump them as a category is problematic even the black category, right? You have Caribbean, right. Caribbean Americans, and all those countries are different. Like, don't say the Bahamian the same as the you know Dominicans. like, no, we not not. Even close, no. don't put us with the Haitian. You know, I mean, people, right. He's black American. Does that include Africans? And you can't really put all the Africans in one. I mean, they're, they're all, 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 you know, hundreds of countries in Africa. You can't lump them together. It's a continent. It's like okay, well they're part of Black Americans. They're like, "No, we don't identify as Black Americans. We might be black, but we're African or we're our country, right? We're Ghanaian, we're Sierra Leonean. We're we're not black." So, it's all of it is complex. Hmm. And I think we have to understand the complexity of it, but we also have to understand at times the benefit of a category. If you use the category well and define it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the landscape um, of higher education yeah. right now, right? Like I mean, now you asked me about if I remember, like back, like in the '90s. Like, I was born in '89, so like, so like I, I, and I think it's easy for millennials to kind of look at moments, and millennials, and honestly, like younger Gen Xers too, to be honest, like look at moments and things the first time that things happen. What what I've learned about history is that it's cyclical, Um, and and then also when you think about like, especially when it pertains to. Uh, civil rights um yeah. the history of civil rights is cyclical like you think about um the the civil rights era in the 60s was fighting for rights that we should have already gotten
1: yeah
0: after Recon- in reconstruction so yeah. and then and then like the fight for voting rights now was 50 you know it's 50 like about 50 years from the fight that we just had 50 some years ago so like i don't want to sit back and act like we're like in these unprecedented times i think that's a disservice and and um it's a disservice to the the fights that have already been fought. Um at the same time, for my lifetime, this is a, a an un, an unforeseen an um unexperienced previously unexperienced amount of scrutiny <laughs> on matters of anything that relates to it seems making anything more fair for anybody yeah. at all. Um yes, yes. <laughs> I, I'm curious as to how is that <laughs> and played a role in the work that you do? And then as you sit back as this as someone who has so much experience and yeah. and knowledge as you and you've looked across like the um um I'm sorry and this is why it's not live because I really want to use the right word. But as you look across the yeah, like just I'm gonna say the landscape and you and you have the and you have the privilege of time. Like you've seen maybe you've seen more. Like, how are you processing this moment in this season?
1: In multiple ways. I'm processing it in multiple ways. So I write a blog post. And when the decision came out, I wrote a blog post called Freedom, Affirmative Action, and the Black College Institute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so each of those are important concepts. And when the Bakke decision came out in 1976, so that was the first time the court said you can't use quotas. Okay. And my parents kept just saying this man's name, Baki, Baki, Baki. Like, I didn't know if it was a disease or (laughs) illness or what was up. They were so angry, like Baki, Baki, Baki. And so that was my first introduction. Like, there's something the matter with something that happened. And this man, this white man is, you know, getting to go to medical school. And so I wrote about that. And now, you know, some 40 years later, here we are back again. I wrote about the Black College Institute because it's a program I started seven years ago at Virginia Tech that brings 600 high achieving, intellectually curious students interested in the African-American experience to Virginia Tech, rising high school juniors and seniors. So over the course of the past seven years, we brought 3,000 largely African-American students to Virginia Tech. Now that's transformed their lives to be in that community. Okay. So those are programs designed to think about how do we address inequity in society. Representation of Black students at Virginia Tech was extraordinarily low. We're you know, on the Southwest side of the state. We're not near the urban populations. We haven't done the outreach that we needed to do. So we've been trying to engage in this work of recruiting talent. And using race as one of many factors made a difference I think we, it's, it's not accurate to say the use of race did not make a difference in diversifying Virginia Tech. It was one of many factors, but it did make a difference. Now, not being able to use that could definitely impact our work, but we have been doing many other efforts that I'm hopeful we'll be able to leverage. And what, I mean, I'm a hopeful person and I do think your lens on the world matters, mm-hmm. right? If you're a pessimistic person, you're like, okay, doomsday is coming and, you know, well, what are we going to do? But I'm a hopeful person. So I looked at the decision and I said, look, there is still hope in this decision because the decision said, hey, to the extent somebody talks about their race in the context of their skills, background and experiences, you can use that. And some of these universities, like kudos to them, they're like, hey, in the context of your background, experience, whatever, per Judge Stevens, you know, what, what, what do you why do you want to come to our university? And. I don't think it just benefits students of color <laughs> to say, hey, I'm a black kid or, I, you know, and being black in America, I'm going to come to your school and I'm going to be able to bring this perspective. It allows white students to say, hey, I'm a white rural kid from Southwest Virginia. Yeah. And I belong at Virginia Tech because it's in my community. And right. so it allows people to think about their identity, their racial, their ethnic, their other ways of identifying who they are and to talk about it. So I still think there's hope in that, but this larger landscape is nothing to play with. <laughs> like the, the anti-deI work is real. So one of the urgent projects I'm working on with a group of colleagues from across the country, it's a book and it's called Dear Higher Ed: Stories from the Social Justice Mountain. And I have this ambitious timeline. I've got about probably 20 or so contributors already and we're trying to get the book out in a year Wow. And I've asked them to write it as like a three to five page letter to higher ed. Like, what do you want higher ed to know? We have colleagues who are in Texas and Florida, and they're going to talk about the impact that the legislation has had on their work. We're going to have folks who do disability work and talk about what does it mean to be a person with a disability in higher ed and what does higher ed need to know about that? We're going to talk to folks who are Native American or African American who are from the APTA community about community and cultural centers, about labor and land acknowledgements. I mean, we're going to cover the gamut of sort of diversity type issues and just put out a conversation piece. It's like higher ed, think about these things. There's a reason there was curricular changes after George Floyd died. There's a reason all that happened. So we could understand and appreciate and value different knowledges and perspectives in society. And so I. I'm trying to address it that way, okay, to respond in writing through this this book project. I'm trying to think strategically about initiatives on our campus, other campuses. Mm -hmm. What strategies should we use, can we use to try to navigate this space? And how do we engage? It's not a minority issue. It's an American issue. And how do we try to bring in these voices of opposition or lack of understanding and say, let's, let's have a conversation.
0: You know, um, and having other conversations with other academics, black academics, um, there's, there's been commentary that academia is in certain ways becoming more corporatized. I'm curious, I'm I'm curious, what does it look like for you as you're doing this very critical work that, I mean, it's no small endeavor, what you're, what you're articulating at all. Um, what does it look like for you to build coalition and support within your university so that these things can happen? Or is that not necessarily as um, prevalent a thing that you need to do?
1: Oh, no, it needs to happen. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really blessed, I would say, to work at Virginia Tech right now. Mm. So the president and I have worked together for the past seven years that I've been at Virginia Tech. He's an amazing, powerful advocate, supporter, ally, in the fight with you president in this work. So even a few weeks ago, he and I did a diversity summit where we sort of spoke to the entire campus together. We were on stage together and just talked about the impact of DEI. And he reassured the campus of his unwavering commitment to the work. We, As part of George Floyd's sort of reckoning after his murder, but we had been doing a series of efforts around diversity, education, and engagement on campus. But we started a specific initiative called White Allies for Transformational Leadership. And in a university setting, department heads have a lot of power.
0: Yeah.
1: So they they sort of manage the department. They manage up to the college level. They manage the faculty. Mm -hmm. And so we voluntarily asked white allies, white department heads, largely men, Mm -hmm. To participate in a year long learning opportunity, a learning space, mm-hmm. where they would read a book called The Inclusive Academy. Mm-hmm. And um, it's by Virginia Valerian and Abigail Stewart. Mm-hmm. And it's best practices for creating this inclusive academy. And they would participate in a year long monthly. Come together. Let's talk about the first time you met a person of color. (laughs) Like, what was that like for you? What type of community? Did you grow up around any people of color? And, And they it became a very honest, open space. I mean, I have a marvelous woman on my team who facilitated. So as a black woman, I didn't have to do that. Amen. So she was a white woman who facilitated the white people to talk about their experiences. And it was very powerful. But the book was also about these are best practices, not just to get more folks of color, but to make your department better, to bring in different voices and perspectives to be an excellent space of learning. And so after a year, these faculty, these department heads were like, yes, we understand what we need to do. And so I said, "Okay, you're dismissed. (laughs) Go forth and do good. (laughs) We've spent a year together. Go out and make the changes that you need. And they said, we don't want to go out and do that without support. We want to stay in our cohort for another year. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's all well and good, but that's going to be more work for me because I need to bring in another cohort. I can't continue to work with your cohort. Mm -hmm. And they said, we'll help you with the new cohort. So we've had three cohorts, almost close to 80 department heads at Virginia Tech have been through this program voluntary. We're moving it now to full professors because that's another power seat in higher ed. We've created an administrative ally program. So senior administrators can also benefit from understanding what it means to create inclusive community. So if you're leading change at a university, you have to have sort of people call it the tone at the top, right? The Mm -hmm. president, the provost, the board, that level of leadership. And currently at Virginia Tech, the chair of the board is an African-American man who is a graduate of Virginia Tech. And that's just been a powerful voice and support but the board has been very supportive of diversity so the leadership team you need to have faculty department heads and you need to have students so we're still a largely white campus and i just think there's a lot more work to be done and that's fine to make sure that the student body here understands supports affirms the value of diversity i mean we're lucky in a little bit of a ways because we have a set of principles of community that came out of struggle in the African-American activist perspective mm-hmm. in the early 2000, but we've adopted it. So everybody at Virginia Tech knows we have a set of principles of community that affirm the basic value and dignity and speech of individuals. We have a motto, our motto is ut prosum, that I may serve. And I say it means to be of service to anyone, anytime, anywhere. So you can't be like, oh, you're, you look like this. I'm not going <laughs> to be of service to you. Like, no, it doesn't matter. But you need to have a certain level of cultural competency to effectively serve others. So let's just help you build that competency. So we have some building blocks that we can put in place to try to create a culture where we're preparing students to go out in the world and make a difference. But yeah, you you have to I believe we we as a in these higher ed spaces have to try to make students, I mean it's about the students really, to prepare them for this really complicated world that's just shifting you know, in so many ways quickly.
0: You know, I reached out to you um, after reading some of your, uh, some of your writing uh, following the deaths of uh, Joanne A. Epps of Temple University yeah. and Dr. orinthia uh, T. Montague of Volunteer State Community College. You know, considering your yeah. background in research, I'd love to hear your perspective on, like just, this. why we, like, I got started off with the question I did, like just this meta narrative of Black women mistreatment and exploitation. Um, and it's through line within the ivory, right? I think it's, it just really, it shook me, and I think a lot of folks online, uh, especially when I believe it was I, when was Miss um, Epps when she passed, I heard a collapse on stage, and then for the event just to continue as scheduled, um, I cried. It like, brought that that hurt me, Um disturbed yeah. me, um, and so and like I said, I was on LinkedIn, and I saw your I saw what you I saw the piece that you wrote. I was like, man, I really got to get Doctor Pratt on like very soon, and so um, I'm just curious. Like, I'm just I'm just curious to hear your perspective.
1: Well, so my work has been in women's leadership. My scholarship, yes. So I did in 2018. I did this edited volume on women of, women of color presidents in the academy. I called it Journeys of Social Justice. And in that edited volume, there were women of color in administrative positions who talked about just the pressure, the stress Mm -hmm. and this conference that I mentioned that I founded 12 years ago, the faculty, women of color in the Academy, national conference. I founded that conference because I knew sort of the pressure that, especially if you're the only one or two (laughs) in your university, some smaller universities, departments, colleges, it's a burden, it's a weight that we carry. And I, I see it every year, and it's sort of astonishing to me, but very real. When women walk into the conference, they're exhausted. And it's like they're carrying this heavy weight of just themselves. Like they can barely hold themselves up to enter. Just the the weight of being a woman of color, of being around whiteness often, of being invalidated, not affirmed, of experienced microaggressions, macroaggressions, racism, sexism, all of that. They're, they walk in and they're almost bent down. Hmm. But then they walk in the space of like a thousand other women of color. They're like, whoa, I'm not alone. I can I can do this. I can connect with other women. I can support. I can be empowered. And so the bird and the stories that women are telling are powerful. The silencing, the invisibilization, and I know all those stories. I I, I know those stories. And so that's a real dynamic. OK, that just the pressure. And I'm, I don't think it's unique to higher ed. It's just, the again, as I said at the beginning, the oppression that women of color, black women experience in America. Because we, we're not just like in higher ed. We're just not a faculty member. We're mothers. <laughs> we're wives. We're sisters. Mm-hmm. We're daughters. We're aunties we're in community organizations. We're doing the United way. We're doing the goodwill. We're doing our support. We're doing it all. And we're, but we're not doing us. Mm-hmm. And I remember distinctly, I went to a wellness session probably now 10 years ago. And the session said, imagine you have a jar. And you're going to fill the jar with the rocks that are important. So start with the big rocks, put them in your jar. What are your rocks? Okay, I put some rocks in the jar. Okay, now do some sand or whatever. What are those things in the water? And it's like, let's look at your jar and let's talk about your jar. And I was like, I'm not in my jar. (laughs) Like, I had my family and my job and my kids and all of those. And my mom at the time was dealing with Alzheimer's and I was trying to support her and people who were in this sandwich generation, you got your parents, you're trying to take care of, you got your children trying to take care of. And there was no Mena in the jar. Hmm. I was like, Whoa, who's going to take care of Mena Hmm. who's going to take care of Mena. Hmm. And so in the work that I do, I try to be very conscious of creating a space where I try to remind women, (laughs) take care of you. And in that article that you mentioned on LinkedIn, that, sort of start as a blog post and then i did it as a linkedin article it was called take two giant steps backwards because i was going into a job getting there at seven in the morning before everybody else i was leaving leaving at the end of the day after everybody else nobody else was still there Mm -hmm. just trying to prove and show that i belonged that you know i was committed to the work of the institution and i heard a voice it says simon says (laughs) take two giant steps backwards." i was like what What's Simon doing talking to me? Where's this voice coming from? I and mean, it was persistent. Mm-hmm. Simon says, take two giant steps backward. Mm-hmm. And I heard that voice and I was obedient to it. I stopped showing up at seven. I'm not saying that I didn't do my job well, but I did my job differently. Because I knew that if I died, because I saw it happen. People died and the next day, somebody else had their position. It's like you, the interim now. What what happened to, no gone so if i die there i'm i'm, irre- I'm replaceable i am not irreplaceable. none of us are irreplaceable so do the job differently and take care of you so that's what I, the message that i tried to, to put out yeah
0: um it's sobering right and i think yeah. you said something earlier about just like your lens and how you look at the world and i'll say like um It's challenging for me not to be pessimistic. It's challenging me for me not to just be like, man, I'll just keep, you just keep throwing black and brown bodies away. Um, like what's, what's the point. Right. Um, but, but what is sobering and grounding is for me, I have the privilege of, of having a a family. I have two small daughters. I have a wife. And so I know that I'm not replaceable in the same ways Mm -hmm. that I would be to whatever the institution is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the one thing that it did affirm was um, these things will be here and they don't like, there's this, it's so interesting. Like there's this, um, these organizations, they benefit in selling you on the illusion that you are the most needed thing so they can get the most uh, production out of you. Yes. Yes. Because if they told you, hey take care of your family, whatever. And like, if they really meant it, because people say that, but they don't really like mean it, like right? like the full implication mm-hmm. of what that would mean. Um, then they're not going to get the most production out of you. Um, and they're not going to get as much uh, monetary value out of you. If you don't feel as if you need to throw yourself at it. I think they are, this might be some of my pessimism, Dr. Pratt. I think that I orga- think there' are certain organizations and cultures that depend on you throwing yourself at it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as hard as you can. Um, yeah. And so I'm at peace with and I was really affirmed with the idea of like, I've really got to plug in with my family, stay mm-hmm. in- engaged and invest in myself, my own health, yeah. my own care. So,
1: yeah, I, re- I mean, I have two children now. They're in their 20s. But I realized barely, very early on I was working as a corporate lawyer. Um, very early in my career at a law firm. And you have billable hours. And I was getting there. I was dropping my child off at 6 a.m., my first child, my son, 6 a.m. to the daycare when they opened. And I was trying to get back to the daycare by 6 p.m. when they closed. So I wasn't going to pay for a dollar a minute or whatever they charge if you're late. Mm -hmm. And I thought, my child is in daycare 12 hours a day. He's tired when I take him. He's tired when I pick him up. And I'm tired. And what's our time together? It's like, I cannot do this job and effectively raise and have time to really mother my child the way I want to. So I'm gonna have to. That's when I started looking for a different job. <laughs> like, okay, someone has gotta, gotta shift here. Because children grow up so quickly. You you spin around and next thing you know, they're like 10. It's like, wow, well, how'd you get, you know? Like I said, they're driving a car yeah. and you don't even have any morning time with them. And you know, next thing you know, they're in college. And you know, you're gonna see them at Christmas and Thanksgiving if that. And so if you don't structure your life in a way and I was on a webinar yesterday because I'm always trying to learn from you know other folks and this amazing woman said you know she realized when her child said I need to I need an appointment with you. Mm. You you are I need to schedule time with my mom because you are so busy mm. with other people's children in higher ed mm. that you don't have time for me. Mm. And so how do we, we get out of sync, you know, we just get twisted as folks say, you know, and and we're trying, and and, and it's legitimate though. We are trying to help our own children in higher ed. It's brown, black children who are struggling, who need somebody to talk to, who need to know how to leverage power and resources to get their degree. And so we're making all kinds of time for them, but what is the cost to ourselves, our families? And so that's the piece that we've got to just try to balance things a little bit differently in in our world.
0: You know, you describe, you describe yourself um, or you describe yourself in a variety of ways, Uh, but one of the descriptions you use for yourself is is an activist. Um, Can you talk about what that title means to you?
1: Yeah. So for me, the sense of activism is action. (laughs) Like I have to do, and I've been blessed to have certain credentials that I was always taught that degrees are keys that open doors. Well, I have five degrees and I have a lot of keys and they have opened a lot of doors. And I have access to resources. I have access to knowledge and I have access to power. And then it creates a responsibility for action, activism, to use that power to not only empower myself, but to empower others. And so one of the projects I'm working on that I'm really excited about, it's a book project that will come out in April, and it's called Black Wild Girl, A Writer's Journey to Take Back Her Superpower. Mm. And I believe we all have a superpower. Some of us are more conscious of what it is and what our gift is, our unique gift that we've come into the world to use, to share, to make a difference. And sometimes along the way, we lose it. We don't have access to it or we get told that that's not our gift or we're not good at that or we shouldn't do that. But I think we all come into the world with some unique gifts that we have a responsibility to use our superpower to to make change in the world, to make the world better for everybody. And so that's the action. I don't think you should just like come here and sort of chill <laughs> like you know, I don't think we're here to chill. Like there's, there's work to be done. There's people who are sick, who are struggling, who are uneducated, who are in poverty, who don't have food, who don't have clothes, who don't have the basics of life. And there are, there are those of us who do. <laughs> we have luxuries in life. And so how can we leverage what we have to empower others so that they get to use their superpower? They get to use their gifts that they've come into the world with. But society has created these systems and structures that prohibit them from letting their light shine. And how do we help more folks, those of us who have been privileged without merit necessarily, because why did we get it and some others didn't, Mm -hmm. to help others sort of be able to let their light shine? So for me, I, I just see it as if you have sort of access to resources, education, connections, networks, then you have a responsibility to be an activist and to use that to help others to leverage their gifts and power in the world.
0: That's incredible. Um, you know, my last question, and and I, I ask this question to folks, and it's it's frustrating, Dr. Pratt, because you get hit with a bunch of theoretical stuff. Right it's exhausting to me like it's like okay okay yeah but i'm saying like practically like what needs to actually the, i i find myself like in a really unique position in this conversation because you actually study the space and you have exposure in this space you've been doing this work so i asked this question with that respect in mind on the forefront of my mind what way what are the ways that systems and institutions need to be reimagined to better support women, particularly black and brown women? And, and also, maybe i say, is there even space for any of, any of this to be reimagined, right? But I'd love just to hear your perspective there.
1: Yes, I like that question because as a sociologist, I think about systems and structures. Mm-hmm. And there is, there is an opportunity to reimagine. So I talked about that White Allies program, right? It's like there's best practices and people should implement them, learn them and implement them. But I want to talk a little bit about power and how I see power and how power has been defined in some of the work that I've studied. So Patricia Hill Collins, many people will know and recognize her name as a Black woman sociologist, very powerful. She wrote a book called Black Feminist Thought. And in that work, she talks about power domains. Power is this like energy flow (laughs) that you can access and tap into if you understand it well and how power can be sort of sites of domination and sites of oppression but you can also leverage power to create liberation if you understand the way power is working Hmm. and she talks about four power domains so one of them is this hegemonic domain okay which is really hard it's like the domain of bias and ideology you know religion sits in that domain white supremacy sits in that domain and, and those are things are, that are hard to change, right? But that's one domain of power. It's the hegemonic domain. Then you have the structural domain. Well, those are s- systems and structures in society, churches, <laughs> schools, banks. So these just social structures in society. Okay. That's another thing that's you're not going to dismantle, you know, the Catholic church <laughs> in, in one day, right? right? right. So, so those structures are hard to change. The banking system, the financial systems. They've been around for a while, okay? The other domain is a disciplinary domain. It's the domain of policies and procedures and laws, and you can shift those. Okay, that's sort of a little bit malleable. The Civil Rights Movement did that. Student protests on college campuses. I mean, right now, if in Texas and Florida, students just sort of rose up and said, "Uh uh-uh, where's that diversity class? I'm not going to school. We not going to school until you bring those classes back. Mm. Where's that office that I was going to? We're, we're not. No, we're going to protest on this campus. It's always, unfortunately, been on the backs of students to engage in social justice protests that has led to change on college campuses. OK, but that's the this disciplinary domain of policies, procedures and laws. The other domain is the interpersonal domain, and that's the domain of relationships with people conversations with people, because it's ultimately people who are implementing policies within social structures based on ideologies. So it all connects back to individuals. And so it's one thing to say, oh, the system is oppressing me. Yeah, the system is oppressing you, but there's a person who's leveraging their power to say, you can't do such and such. (laughs) And you may actually be able to do such and such, but they're a gatekeeper. And depending on who's at the door, you either get in or you don't. Hmm. So if you understand, I guess I'm trying to say, as a sociologist, as a lawyer, when I think about leading change in an organization, I think about what power domains are creating the suppression, which ones can be shifted. And that's not always big shifts, but sometimes it are it is. And I and I share with people when you look at the LGBTQ population. All this, They, for a long time, it's like, don't even say gay. Don't talk about being gay. We don't, we don't, just stay in the closet. Okay. Then they slowly started having different people agree to civil unions. Hey, just come to me and I'll, I'll sort of marry you. You know, nobody will necessarily know, but it'll be a civil union. Then you started having a few states that are like, okay, we're going to legalize gay marriage. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, it became out in the open. And it was like, okay, you've got the right to be with who- and love whoever you want to be with. Well, that was a social justice movement. It was a radical movement. It happened fairly quickly in comparison to many movements. Okay. And all of a sudden, it wasn't that because people with ideologies about gay people didn't necessarily change, but they knew a person who was. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, my person is dying. Yeah, they should be able to be in the room with the person they love when they're dying. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was this very interesting dynamic where it connected on a personal level and people could say, I get it. Okay, that's what happened with George Floyd. It's like everybody started seeing see themselves. It's like, what if I was there dying? Well, that's just terrible. We, we should do something about that. So when it comes down to this level of people and conversation and humanity, and people can connect on that human level, I think that's where change can happen. And you start to see people differently than if you don't have those conversations. So when I think about, can change happen? Yes. Yes. I I fundamentally, again, maybe, I mean, yes, I'm optimistic, but I'm not clueless in my optimism. (laughs) So if I understand domains and I say, yes, they are systems of oppression and sites of domination, but I can learn how to leverage them to engage in activism, to fight for liberation to shift ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of doing, sometimes in small settings, sometimes maybe in bigger settings that create movements. I mean, that's how social justice movements are created that change the world. And so, yes, I think it is possible. And yes, we need to continue to do the work and we need to think about how we do it, who we do it with. Like I said, student protest, but it can't just be the black students protesting on campus, get all the students. Every you know, get a coalition <laughs> of students to say, Yeah, those officers are important. You know, these classes are important. We wanna learn this stuff. Dr.
0: Pratt, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Um oh, thank you. I'm I'm so excited um for for folks to be able to listen to this. I wanna make sure um that we just thank you and that, you know, you're a friend of the show. Welcome to you come thank back you. anytime, especially as Your publications come out, your books. Yeah. Really excited to like spotlight those and talk about those. Uh, Before we go, any parting words or shout outs?
1: Oh, (laughs) well, I want to shout you out. I mean, I just think it's phenomenal the work that you're doing and to have sort of this platform, but also the way you're just trying to leverage the voices, the spaces, the expertise of folks who are trying to make a difference in the world. I mean, I don't think it's easy just going out and doing what you're doing in the world. And so I just like props to you for for the work that you're
0: doing, thank you, Dr. Pratt. We'll talk to you soon
1: okay, thank you
0: and we're back, yo, I want to thank our guests i want to i want to say uh much love to the entire living corporate team. thank you for you you that's right you listen to this right now, driving in your car or on the subway or you know, what I'm saying working out or just listening late at night while you, you know, what I'm saying doing some work or something. Thank you for being a part of our living corporate community. I appreciate you. Make sure if you haven't already that you create a login on living dash corporate com where you can actually get all this content pushed to you based on the types of things that you want to engage and listen to. Make sure you actually go to living corporate.com for jobs and uh, career advice and all types of just dope content that we got on there and that we're publishing every single day. All right. Till next time this has been Zach. I'll catch you soon. Peace.